of Jeremiah. And uh, if you have your daily Bibles, we're looking at chapter 32. That's August 22nd. There are two words that most people today in the world would not consider being compatible or even, and I'm going to say synonymous. And these words are significant words. The first word is biblical. And the second word is practical. There's a lots and lots and lots of people today who when you, saw, you talk about the Bible and you talk about being biblical, they kind of screw up their faces a little bit and they go, huh? And the implication obviously, and if not in word, certainly by expression, is that that's not practical. The Bible is irrelevant. It's impractical. Biblical principles are not really practical for this modern day world. And so out of Jeremiah 32, I want to talk to you this morning about being practical and the necessity for being practical. If you are to describe a, a person as being practical, you would probably describe that person as someone maybe who is quick, efficient, modern, doesn't waste time, down to earth, knows how to get things done. Do those phrases and terms kind of describe a, a person that we would say is practical? A practical person. Knows how to get, get things done. Knows how to accomplish things. And we've lifted the term and the concept of being practical, we've lifted it up and given it tremendous esteem in our culture today, in our society. We are very pragmatic people. Do you know that? We're very pragmatic. We just want to know what works. Just tell me what works. And if you don't believe me, you go to any bookstore and library and you see all the how-to books. People no longer are interested in principles. They're no longer interested in truth. They just are interested in being pragmatic and practical and saying what works. Just tell me what works. Don't give me all this other stuff. I don't need all the philosophy. Don't give me all the background. Just tell me what to do. And so we've got the, 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 the cult of the practical, the pragmatic. And all of us have bought into it. It's quick and easy. Drive through restaurants, disposable cookware. I mean, you name it. Everything is a throwaway society. It's just quick, it's practical. Are you, are you reading me? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Yes. And by contrast, then, we set up a picture uh, of what now is impractical. All the opposite. Well, having dishes and fine china and all this stuff is impractical. When we have people over for dinner, my, my wife loves to set a beautiful table. She loves to, to, to put out all of her real nice things that she's gotten at all the garage sales and... <laughs> It's amazing, the stuff that she finds at garage sales. <laughs> but you see, to someone coming in, say, oh, that, that's not practical, that's impractical. And we dismiss all that which is impractical as becoming irrelevant. So this morning, it's, it's, it's important for us to, to think. How do we look at the practical? How do we look at the impractical? And I would submit to you that the Bible claims to be practical. In fact, those two terms, biblical and practical, are essentially synonymous. If something is practical, if something is really practical, it's biblical. And the biblical is practical, as I'll hopefully show you this morning. Now, the Bible, we've talked about this many times, the Bible is God's instruction book for life. True? This is the manufacturer's handbook. He says, before all else goes wrong, read the instructions. 
There are practical, everyday instructions in this book. How life functions, how relationships function, how we function, what brings health and well-being to our life, what brings dysfunction and brokenness to our life. All the solutions, all the answers, all the insights are included in this very practical instruction book for life. I often find myself in frequent disagreement with what is supposed to be practical. Happens every day. We have a great enthusiasm today in our society for the practical, but there's much confusion and much ignorance surrounding what is in fact practical. Oh, everybody's saying, oh, be practical, be practical. When in fact there's much confusion about what it is to be practical. And in the confusion and ignorance, great, great crowds of people today, not just outside the church, but even inside the church, live extremely impractical lives extremely impractical lives and engage in hopelessly impractical behaviors, all the while supposing themselves to be no-nonsense, hard-headed, practical people. When in fact you look at the fruit of their life and it's the fruit of impracticality. Jeremiah was one of the most practical persons who ever lived. Do you know that? The more I read this book and study Jeremiah, the more profoundly influenced I am by his life. Jeremiah's sense of the practical, what was really practical, what really made sense, conflicted constantly with the impracticalities of the people around him, those in Jerusalem and those in Judea. Jeremiah was convinced that he lived in a creation that was made to work and work well. God created you and I, and he created our relationships. He created creation to work, and he created it to work well. He created a practical creation. He means for it to work well. Even in the presence of sin, he still means for these things to work well. He still means for us to work well. He still means for our relationships to work well. And he has provided all that we need, Peter says, for life and godliness. Everything is there for us. And Jeremiah was utterly convinced of this reality. Everything matters to God. And what happens to everything matters to God. The Bible tells us Jesus' own words are that that even when a sparrow falls from the sky, God cares. He knows about it. It doesn't go unnoticed. The very hairs on our head are counted. God knows every one. Those are, are metaphors for God caring for every detail of our life. He cares. And he understands. And he has given a design for us to live a very full and practical life, a life that works, a life that works and works well. It is an affront to God when things don't work well. Think about that. It is a personal affront to God when things don't work well. When people live badly, when people live impractically, it's an affront to God. How many parents do we have here this morning? Oh, quite a few. Wonderful. Think about, think about this with me. You raise up your children. You give them a design. You give them a direction. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. But you, you do your very best to train up your child in the way he or she should go. You try to give them a heritage, some direction, some purpose, some meaning for their life. So that they can live their life how? Impractically? No. You want them to live their life what? Practically, you want their life to work well. You try to impart to them all that you can do to ensure and to enhance the chances, the possibilities, the reality that their lives will work well. Now, when their lives don't work well, when they live badly, when they live impractically, 
Is that not then, in effect, a personal affront to you as a parent? Yes, absolutely. And so the same thing is true of God. You know, I heard this phrase. It was really, really struck me. God gave us the word. God gave us preachers. And then he gave us children to teach us. <laughs> is that not the truth, parents? I, I have learned more about my relationship with God through my relationship with my son than any other place. God teaches me more about how I break his heart, how I let him down, through my relationship with my son than anything else. And it's just, it's just changed me and powerfully affected my life. And I think every parent would understand and agree with that. See, Jeremiah's sense of the practical was built on the belief that God is the most important reality that you and I have to deal with. I think all of us would agree with that. But sometimes we don't always engage that. He is the most important reality with which you and I must deal. And his sense from that, he believed that every person is made for a relationship with God. And without, without the acknowledgement of that, without the nurturing of that relationship with him, we find ourselves living badly. We find ourselves living very impractically, impractical lives. People try to be good without God, and it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. People try to be good, live good lives, not the God life. It just doesn't work. And so Jeremiah has much to say to us this morning about this idea of living practically in the face of the impracticalities of our peers and those around us. And in this chapter, chapter 32, let me give you a little bit of background. The king of Judah now is Zedekiah. He is a puppet king of the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire has swept in 11 years earlier and taken off into captivity, taken off into exile to Babylon, all the leading people, all the professional people, all the artisan, all the gifted people in Jerusalem and Judea. And so they've left behind all the common people. And uh, Judah now has become, in effect, a vassal state to Babylon, to the Babylonian emperor, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now it's been this way for 11 years. God has told his people to just be content living in those circumstances. Be content, trust me. But they are not content to live in those circumstances. And if you know anything about the history of, of, uh, of the Jews in Israel, they are never content to live under foreign rule. And so, within this period of time, they begin to work with Egypt again. They try to form an alliance with Egypt to throw off the yoke of Babylonian uh, government. Now, Egypt comes up. They get scared. They back out of the deal. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, obviously gets word that, that uh, Judah is getting ready to rebel. They're forming an alliance with Egypt. So he brings all of his armies back down into Judah. Egypt runs away scared. Judah is left there absolutely facing Nebuchadnezzar all by themselves. Incredibly uh, outmanned, hopeless situation. It's doomsday. And in fact, Jeremiah has been preaching that the Babylonians are going to come down. He's tried to warn Zedekiah not to do this. But he says, if you continue this, the Babylonians are going to come and they are going to scrape the ground. And they're going to take you off into captivity, Zedekiah. What he doesn't tell Zedekiah is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to gouge out his eyes. And mercifully, Zedekiah doesn't know that at this point. But right now, where we pick up this passage in chapter 32, Jeremiah is under house arrest. He's in jail. He's in jail because he's been preaching. Zedekiah can't stand listening to him. One more word, and so he's got him in jail 
got him right under his nose to hear his preaching now. That's what it's all about. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, why do you prophesy as you do? Why do you keep saying all these bad doomsday kinds of things? See, the people, even up to this point, with Babylon banging on the, on the city walls, the people still don't believe that God's going to bring judgment. I mean, you talk about denial. You talk about saying, no, 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 this isn't happening. That's where the people are. And Zedekiah, just to shut jo Jeremiah up, has got him under house arrest, as if that's going to shut him up. So he's been saying to him, why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to hand this city over to the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape out of the hands of the Babylonians, but will certainly be handed over to the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. And then you can just kind of spread those two sentences apart and say, oh, and by the way, Zedekiah is going to gouge your eyes out too. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. And if you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. He says, submit. Incidentally, Peter echoes that refrain when he says, you're going to suffer for doing what's right. You're going to suffer for doing what's right. Submit. Submit. Now, in the context of this whole situation now, while Jeremiah is in prison, he does something at this point that seems absolutely crazy, given the context. He does something at this point that seems absolutely impractical. Doesn't make any sense. What is he going to do? He's going to buy the farm. He's going to buy a piece of land. Now, it doesn't make any sense that he buys this land, uh, because at the very moment he's buying it, the Babylonians are camped out on it. I mean, that's pretty absurd. Oh, yeah, this is a good deal. I better buy this land. Shoot, don't you know the Babylonians are camped on it? Don't you know, don't you realize that you're in prison and you have no immediate hope for release? Don't you know that you're never even going to be able to build a house on that land or plant a tree on it? Probably you'll never see it. Don't you know that the enemy is pounding on the gates of the city and the city walls and they're going to come in, overrun us, and take us all to captivity for 70 years? Jeremiah, you're never going to see this land again. Why are you going to buy this land? You're making a stupid investment here. Do you understand how the people around him could look at this as being very impractical? Oh, sure, Jeremiah, there he goes, one of those another dumb things. But Jeremiah was an extremely practical man. Extremely practical. Read about this. Verse, verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth. Because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. So apparently his cousin wants to unload this piece of land. Maybe he sees the handwriting on the wall. He believes that judgment's coming. He's got the Babylonians camped on his land. He says, man, maybe I can unload this to Jeremiah. <laughs> maybe he'll buy it. So God comes and tells him, your cousin's going to come to you and offer this piece of land to you. Then, he says, just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the garden and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin. Since it is your right to redeem it and possess it, buy it for yourself. Now, Jeremiah says, no way. No way. What do I want with that piece of land? Man, we're going to be carried off into captivity. Haven't you heard all my preaching all these years? It does me no good to buy this piece of land. Eh. -eh. Get away. Go sell it to somebody else. Is that what he says? No. Look at this. He says, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I knew that this was the word of the Lord. But I said, I don't want to do it. Anybody ever done that? I knew that this was the word of the Lord, but you said no. 
Sure. So I bought the field at Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel, weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and gave this deed to Baruch, that was his secretary, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. So this was broad knowledge. Word spread fast throughout Jerusalem. Jeremiah just bought some land. Does he know something we don't know? What in the world is he doing? From the looks of things, it's the most impractical thing he could do. Are you with me? Do you understand the setting here? Why did he do it? Why did he buy that land when in the face of it, in the face of the circumstances, it seemed like the most impractical thing? It seemed absolutely crazy. Why did he buy it? You know why he bought it? For the most practical of all reasons. Because he was obeying God, he was doing what God said, and he was investing in the future of Israel. He was investing in the future of Israel. Get this point. If you don't get anything else out of this morning, get this point. When you obey God, even in the presence of op opposing circumstances, even when it doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking, even when every human reason would go against it, if God has clearly said that you should do this, do it, because you are making a profound investment in the future of your life and the lives of those around you. You're making an investment. I can't impress upon you enough how important this is. Obedience is investing in the future. Obedience is investing in the future. Don't we tell our kids that? Obey me, trust me, do what's right. Why? Because you're gonna build into your future a habit of doing what's right and fruitfulness will come from that rather than destruction. You see, he's convinced that all the troubles that are going to happen to all the people, God is going to use all those troubles. He's going to use all those problems. And the buying of the land is a testimony to that reality. The essential reality for Jeremiah was not that the Babylonians were camped on the field, but that God would use the field to fulfill his promises. Surely the Babylonians were there. Surely he couldn't deny that reality. But that wasn't the greatest reality to him. Read on with me. Verse 13. In their presence I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. This is what our God is telling us. This is his word. Take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. And in that desert place, they put them in these clay jars, and these documents lasted a long, long time. We have the, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in 1947, which date back to 100 B.C. Complete whole documents. And where do they find them? in clay pots, preserved for a long time. Now look at this. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. There is hope. There is hope. Though destruction is coming, though judgment is coming, there is hope. He bought the field as an investment in God's next project for Israel. That's a profound lesson. There is more, he says, than just the Babylonians here at the gate of the city. God is in your midst. 
God is in your midst. Sure, judgment is here. But don't despair. It's God's judgment. Face it. Accept it. Experience the chastening. You see, Jeremiah is giving the people hope. Don't despair. Don't feel like it's all over. Don't feel like the Babylonians are going to blow you away and that's all there is to it. God's still in your midst. It's God bringing the Babylonians. He says, God is not against you. He is for you. He is for you. He has not rejected you, but he is working in your life and he's working on your behalf. He is working for you. Judgment is not the last word. Judgment, brokenness, destruction, chastening, discipline, that is not the last word. And it never is the last word. But it is necessary. It was necessary for God to bring the Babylonians. It was necessary for judgment to come on Judah. Why? Because of centuries of hard-heartedness. Centuries of them saying, no, no, and rebelling. Centuries of immersing themselves in idolatry in their own interests. And so it's necessary that God brings the judgment. It's necessary that he brings the discipline. Its purpose was to what? Its purpose was to open the people's hearts. Its purpose was to get their attention, to get them to look beyond themselves, to crack the hard outer shell of self-sufficiency. You know that all of us are firmly committed to self-sufficiency? Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. I'll prove it to you. When someone comes and confronts you, when they nail you on something, do you say, oh, thank you very much. I needed that. Is that the, the, the initial response that comes up in you? Or do you get defensive? So wait a minute. Wait a minute. Now let me give you an understanding. Let me give you some excuses here. Self-sufficiency. God brings judgment into our life. Now, understand, there's a difference between judgment and punishment. He's not punishing us. If you're a Christian, everything you have ever done, everything you will ever will do, that is contrary to God's will and purpose and plan. Everything you've done and experienced and will do and experience sinfully has already been punished at the cross. It's already been punished. Do you understand that? It's already been dealt with. You say, well, well, if he's already punished all my sins, then why am I going through this grief? This is discipline. Discipline always has its eye to the future. It does not have its eye to the past. Punishment has its eye to the past. God does not punish us. He brings judgment. In other words, he's judging our attitudes, judging our behavior, bringing discipline to bear on our life to orient us toward the what? Future. When I discipline my son, I don't discipline him necessarily for what he has done as punishment. I'm always trying to remember to direct him to the future. The language I use I say to him, do you understand how you should be acting? Do you understand how your attitude should be exhibited? Yes, Dad. Do you understand the way you should be going? Yes, Dad. I understand the way I should be going. You see, the idea is that it's towards the future. It's which way am I going? Old things have passed away. It doesn't help to dwell on the past. And so God is bringing difficulties into our life through a variety of means. But the, the, the essential reason is to hammer through, to break through that hard shell of self-sufficiency in our life. Because so many of us are living terribly impractically because we are dependent upon ourselves. Ourselves. 
We are not submitted to the instruments, to the will of God. Most people today, and even in the church, are living minimally. Though there is a verbal commitment, you see the, the, the thrust of that commitment goes shallow into lives, by and large. And the reason is because of this shell that we've grown up with of self-sufficiency. And God is going to hammer through it. He's going to hammer through it. He's going to crack that shell so that we can know. We can know personally. We can know intimately his merciful, faithful, wonderful, healing love and grace. He wants us to know it. He wants us to know it. But we keep that shell up. We only let people get so close, don't we? We're very cautious, very distrustful of others. We've been ripped off a lot. And we have this, this built-in sense of acceptability and legalism that's based on our performance and every one of us know that we're terribly inadequate and we're not performing the way we should so therefore we're not acceptable and we've got this shell we've got this shell we live in this little shell but it's a very hard shell but God is determined to break that shell and for some of us it just takes more discipline more judgment, more work, more pounding on the shell, more pounding on the shell until that shell cracks and we let him in. And I think that you'll agree with me that those of us who, who know something of God's love, it has come, it has become so real to us only when we've been absolutely what? Broken. When we're absolutely at the bottom, when there's nowhere else to go, when we can't do anything else, when we can't say anything else, all we can do is with tears say, God, help me. Finally, the shell is broken. And then God's gracious love floods in. I know many of you, because I see your heads nodding, I see a few eyes, a little weepy. You know what I'm talking about. God is faithful. He is for us. He's not against us. He longs for us to know his merciful, forgiving, healing grace. But you know, as Jeremiah preaches this message of hope, as he says, once again, houses and fields and vineyards will be bought again in this land. As he says it, as he buys the land as a testimony, the people still don't believe it. The message is still disbelieved, just as the message of judgment was disbelieved. I've talked to people and counsel people. They come and they say, they say here's, the, here's the situation. What counsel would you give me? What does the Bible say about such and such? And so we go through the biblical principles. We describe it. We say, this is what God says. This is, this is exactly what you should be doing. Now, most often these things are in the context of relationships. And the person nods, they smile, they say, yes, I understand. And they say, okay. And they go off and do just the opposite. Just the opposite. Because of the shell of self-sufficiency. And they're just looking for easing of their situation. They don't understand that God is trying to do a great work in their life. And this difficult situation is in their life to hammer through and break through that shell. Are you with me? Does this make any sense? Biblical choices, obedience to the word is not a grievous thing. God doesn't say, now obey me, as if obedience was some terrible, horrible thing we had to do. Obedience is living practically. It's living sensibly. It makes sense to obey the manufacturer's handbook. It makes sense to do what he says to do. Because every time you do it, 
Every time you receive his word, every time you do his word, you act on what he says, you are making an investment in your future life that is going to bear handsomely in terms of fruit. And very often, God asks you to do things that just, in the context of the circumstances you're in, seem contrary. Well, what, what, what good is that going to do? What good is that going to do? No, 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 forgive that person. Well, you don't understand. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. God says forgive. Now, what good is forgiving going to do? You'll just have to wait and see. But I promise you, it's going to do some great good if you will generally forgive. What do you mean, love that person? Don't you know what they've done? Yeah. But you see, the model is God loved us. We were still his enemies. While we were still sinners, he died for us. That's the model. I humble myself? It doesn't make any sense. I know it doesn't make any sense to you right now. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Give? 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 Yes, give. Trust God. Learn to give. Learn to give of your life, of your time, of your energy, of your substance. Give. Learn to be a giving, gracious person. Learn. Take those steps of faith. Be obedient. Why? Because you're making an investment. God says, given it shall be given to you. Even when your circumstances say, no way, this doesn't make any sense. It's against all reason. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Because you're making a tremendous investment in the future. You're talking about learning how to live hopefully. Living hopefully. Hopefully is not wishful thinking. We confuse hope and wishing. Well, I hope it happens. No! Biblical hope is confidence. I'm confident in God. I'm confident in his way. I'm confident in his purpose and his plan. But people will not take words encouraging them that there is hope if they will obey God. There is hope. There is hope. There is hope. God is working. He wants you to cooperate with him in the process. And, and we, we make it much more difficult. We string it out. I'm convinced when we get to heaven, God's going to say, you know, I never meant it to be that difficult. <laughs> but we have this, this thing about us that we always tend to complicate things, right? We always bring in this, all this extraneous stuff that doesn't fit. <laughs> in my roots class, Month after month after month, when I talk to people about living in faith, trusting God, when I talk about the plan of salvation, and I come to this, Romans chapter 4, talk about faith, invariably someone will come to me and they say, that's it? That's it? I say, yep, that's it. It's that simple. No, no, it's got to be more. No, that's it. That's it. You just believe. But it's always amusing to me, and tragically amusing, that people's response is, oh, no, I better complicate this. I need to complicate this. It's not, it can't be that easy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Jeremiah knew that buying the field looked impractical. He knew that it looked foolish. It was against history. It was against reason. It was against, certainly, public opinion. But he didn't buy the field purely on the advice of his broker. He bought it because God told him to. He was witnessing an involvement in the continuity of God's promises. God had promised that he would bring the people back. He promised that there would be a heritage. He had promised over and over and over and over to Abraham on that he was faithful, that he was faithful. 
And, they, and, and Jeremiah, I'm sure, couldn't help feeling, however, a little bit foolish about doing this. I mean, he's a great man of faith, but I'm convinced that there still was a little bit of foolishness in terms of how he felt about doing this. And so what do you do when you're feeling that way? What do you do when you're, no, no, you know, you're going to do this, and, and you're getting out there, and you're sticking out like a sore thumb, proverbially? Isn't it always a good thing to pray? The very next thing he does is praise. He prays. And in the prayer, I want, you to, I want to point out just a couple of verses in the prayer and encourage you to read it on your own. But listen to this prayer. He says, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, I prayed to the Lord. Now, I think there's, there's obviously praise mixed into the prayer, but there's also appeal to here. And what Jeremiah is doing is he is recentering himself in the sovereignty of God. He is reminding himself of who God is. Now, I don't know about you, but I do that all the time. And I'm always having to, to do stuff and to think things and to get out there where it's a little scary in my own life. And so when I do that, in preparation for it, and after I've done some things, I always have to say, let's see now. All right, you are sovereign, that's right. And, uh, and you rule everything. And I can trust in you, and you're faithful. Do you ever, have to, you ever pray like that and psych yourself up? Yeah, it's totally legitimate. Totally legitimate to remind yourself of who God is. And so here's Jeremiah doing that. He says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I bought this piece of land. I got out there and probably looked foolish to everybody in Jerusalem. And you said that you're going to bring all the people back and buying this land was a down payment. It was a sign. It was a symbol. It was all this. Nothing's too hard for you. I know. I'm confident that you can bring everybody back. I'm confident that one day we will enjoy this land once again. Isn't that nice? And so he prays this awesome prayer. And then, he, and then comes the answer to the prayer, the response, God's response in verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. And this is why I think that Jeremiah, is re it's really a plea to God. And God responds to his plea, and he says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. I mean, he just gets it right out there. I'm sovereign. You can trust me. And then he rehearses this rhetorical question that Jeremiah had asked. Is anything too hard for me? Underline that sentence. I mean, if you're facing stuff in your life, you're trusting God. You're out there, man. Everything's hanging on trust. Underline that sentence. Write it on your wall. Put it on your refrigerator. Stick it up on your mirrors. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? Paul says in Romans 4 that the God we worship is the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence which did not previously exist. Is anything too hard for me? Isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting? Confidence! When you trust Him, when you obey Him, when you do the things He says to do, as you're taking those steps, investing in the future, God will work miracles in your life. He will! Drop down to verse 42. This is what the Lord says. I have brought this great calamity on this people. I mean, he says it right up front, and he's rather unapologetic about it, by the way. When grief comes into your life, the devil's there, sure. But you know who's behind it all? You know who's behind it all? God. Now, I... I say that at the risk of being blasphemous and being accused of being blasphemous. But God says, I'm the one who brought this calamity. Satan, he's got Satan on a short leash, you know that. He uses him. You've got to understand that God is sovereign and he is working in our life and he uses great and creative instrumentalities in our life to get our attention to break through our self-sufficiencies. 
so that we become malleable in his hands, pliable, usable, workable. So that what? So that Christ can be seen. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Is Christ living in us? Is he seen? He says, I have brought this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I promised them. Jesus said, I came that you should have life and have it abundantly. Let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter 29. Listen to this. Now these are God's words to Judah, but the principle applies to all God's people, no matter who they are, where they are, and what time frame they're in. Jeremiah 29, listen. God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. What are God's plans? God's plans are good. He has great plans for us. And so Jeremiah prays. And he prays hopefully. He prays hopefully. Living in hope means this. Living in hope means that you're acting on the conviction. You're acting on the conviction that God will complete the work that he has begun even when the appearances, and especially when the appearances, oppose it. I believe you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we have this confidence, he says, that God will bring to completion the work that he has begun. Nothing is going to get in his way. Nothing. And his plans for us are what? Plans for good. Plans to prosper. Plans to bless us. That we could have life and have it abundantly. That we live not impractically, but that we can live what? Practically. The Bible is practical. He gives us practical instruction. He means for our lives to go well. Buying that field for Jeremiah was a deliberate act of hope. And all acts of hope expose themselves to ridicule. If you're unwilling to expose yourself to ridicule, you're not going to be acting in hope. You're not going to be acting along the lines that God is calling you to. All acts of hope seem impractical. Seem impractical at the moment. But they will bear fruit. They will bear fruit. So what's the most practical thing that we can do? Read God's Word, know God's Word, and obey God's Word. Beloved church, it boils down to that. That is the most practical thing you and I can do. Question is, how much time are we spending reading, studying, knowing God's Word? And I would submit to you, you cannot just be spoon-fed. You can't just come here on Sunday morning and let me spoon-feed you. Can't do it. All that testifies to and betrays in you is an attitude of self-sufficiency. You go out of here, you're going to forget what I've said. Even those of you who've taken notes. Three days now, you'll forget. You go to, you go to many church, your mini church shepherd says, now what did Zach talk about? And you say, oh, I don't know, let me get my notes out. It's gone in three days. It's gone in 20 minutes. And so we've got to get back into his word, and we've got to study it, we've got to meditate, and we've got to know what he says. This is the book that describes to us how to live life practically. You want counseling? Go to his word. Go to his word. Go to his word. Go to people who know his word. Go to people who know his word and can give you rich, deep counsel into God's mind and his design. Beware of your own self-sufficiency and that of others. If we are to live practically, we're going to have to frequently defy the impracticalities of all of those around us. You're just going to have to take that step. It takes courage to act in hope. It takes courage to live practically. It takes courage 
to live biblically. But you know what? It's the only way to live. For if we don't live that way, we will never escape the despair and the emptiness of all of society around us. And all those people around us who really have no hope, as Paul says in Thessalonians. They grieve without any hope. Amen? Pray with me. Father, I just pray right now this morning that we would be a people who look at your word, not just, Father, intellectually acknowledging your word as being true and right and good and all those things, but people who have a hunger for your word, a hunger to know your truth. Lord, that we fight against the flesh when, as we read it, the temptation to read quickly and, and mindlessly, that we actively oppose that temptation, that we catch ourselves in the middle of our reading and we sit down and we say, oh God, help me to, to know what you're saying. Give me insight into your word. Give me insight into the principles, God, that you've locked up in your word so that I can know them and give me courage and strength to live them out and to act on them. God, I do not want to live my life shabbily. I do not want to live my life badly. I do not want my life to be an affront to you and to your grace. God, you're my Father. I want my life to bring you glory. I want you to be pleased with how I live my life. You've already given me practical instruction. Strengthen me. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us for these things. I give you thanks, Lord. You are a great God.